3617, respond to report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians, and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news, and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management, bringing real stories and solid training together in one source. Now, here's your host, Darren Dake. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk, the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to the men and women working death investigation. You can probably hear in my voice that uh, I've, I don't know if I've got a cold. I don't know if it's a springtime blues. I don't know what it is, but it just seems like something's wrong with my voice. And so I'll try to get through this the best that I can. But we have an awesome show planned for you. Got a lot of a, a neat things coming up in this show. Number one, I have a huge announcement to make in just a moment. And then you're going to be really interested to hear what's in the news segment, which is we're going to talk about Harrison County, Mississippi and the settlement there uh, with the racial discrimination with the coroner's office type uh, allegation. So we're going to talk about that at length. And then our feature show for today is going to be Elon Caspi, which he is a PhD working in the School of Nursing in Minnesota. And he's been on a long time ago talking about resident to resident interaction. But today we're going to talk about when dementia patients kill and how do we uh, respond to those? How should we respond to those? Uh, is having dementia defense uh, what happens in some of these long-term care facilities when dementia patients are involved, uh, both as the suspect and as the victim, and then how best for us as investigators to respond to these. So we have all of that and more coming up in this show. But first, let me give you some really, really exciting news. Those that have been around for a while since the beginning of the Coroner Talk podcast probably remembers that a year ago, probably two years ago now, we were working here behind the scenes to get the Death Investigator magazine launched and out into your hands. Well, some things occurred, and at that time, we didn't have the staffing. We didn't have really the, the resources that we have now. And so we done a, a Kickstarter campaign to get enough subscribers to be able to go forward. And my thinking at that time was, if we didn't have enough subscribers, then why go forward with a project that nobody wants? I still feel that way. I still believe that way. But we do have some... Uh, different staffing now. We have uh, more support. And I believe we're going to have plenty of subscribers now to be able to launch this program. So the Death Investigator magazine is going to launch. We want to make sure that you, um, as a listener, get the opportunity to get your year subscription at a discounted rate. Now, here's how this is going to work. Next week, being uh, see, at the time this comes out, I guess, actually on the day that this comes out live, uh, any past supporters, that's going to be the 23rd of April, any past supporters or past subscribers will get an email that will give them the opportunity to subscribe early at a, at a very steep discount. Then from there, it's going to be two days later, it's going to be sent to everyone on our mailing list. If you have joined our mailing list in any way, you're going to get an email ability to subscribe uh, quite a bit discount. Okay. Now there's, there's only a few of these spots open. I think there's 50 spots open for the steep discount for the one-year subscription. And then starting May 1st, it's going to open up to the public, and we can go ahead and get the subscriptions going to everybody at that point. And we've got the episodes, or the well, episodes or podcasts. we got the issues of the magazine up and running, and so uh, you'll start receiving those on a monthly basis. Uh, it's a beautiful magazine. It's a, it's a digital form, but you can flip through the pages. You can uh, read it on a reader. You can read it on your computer screen, iPad, something like that. 
And then the future is uh, probably within a year or something like that, I would hope to be able to put that over into a print option so you can actually have a printed magazine if you want to. Starting out, it's only going to be digital, but I really, really like the looks of it. Now, the Death Investigator magazine is only, we, we, we cover law enforcement related areas for death investigation. So coroners, medical examiners, uh, scene security, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about all, every aspect of it like we do on the show uh, that we're going to talk about in the magazine. But it's going to be just for death investigators, uh, how to do your job, uh, family, finance, things like that. But everything about death investigators, we're not going to get into the other law enforcement police things. We've got plenty of magazines to do that. We're going to concentrate on death investigators and the job that we do. So be looking for that this week as you're hearing this live. And then by May 1st, it's open to the public. And any time after that, you should also be able to subscribe, no problem, and pick up every month. You're going to get a new subscription to the Death Investigator magazine. Very excited about it. I've been working two years to get this off the ground. And it looks like we're finally going to get it off the ground. So when you get an email from us, be sure that you jump on there and get it or you will lose your chance at now at the steep discount. Now, the regular subscription is only $29 a year. $29 a year is not that much for uh, every month, a new uh, magazine subscription. So, But you will get discounts for the first few people jumping on. So anyway, watch for that. Very excited about it. If you have any input or ideas, obviously let me know. Now, I want to talk about this, what's in the news here. I think you're going to be really interested in what this is about. Okay, let me give you a little backstory here. Now, this was uh, just as of April 21st, I believe, April 20th. As of April 20th, 2018, a settlement was reached in this case. Now, I want to talk about this case both from a personal side, but also from, uh, you know, from a coroner ME side. And yeah, I know that I get a little personal sometimes and I get a little bit ramped up uh, when it comes to how I feel about things. But I don't, I cannot say that I specifically know the coroner in Harrison County. I know that I've met him. I know that I have talked to him at, at conferences and, and sat with him for a while. He is a fabulous guy. I, I hadn't heard nothing but good from him. But so this isn't a him thing. And in fact, uh, during all of this, he was found not to have been implicit in anything. But so here's the, uh, here's the situation. There is a number, I believe six, Black-owned funeral homes. So, you know, African-American people own these funeral homes. And the way the Harrison County Coroner's Office works, funeral homes do removals for their coroner investigators. And then there's some long-term storage and things like that. So they rotate around which funeral homes are supposed to uh, come get bodies, I guess. And there was a lawsuit that said that the Harrison County Coroner's Office was not using black funeral homes enough at the same ratio, they were white funeral homes, so they sued Harrison County and the Harrison County coroner. Now, they settled on $110,000 in damages, and the county has to have a written policy giving all the county funeral homes equal rotation when it comes to picking up and storing, well, picking up bodies. Storing prop bodies is another idea right now, another problem, but picking bodies up from the scene 
and pay $110,000 in damages. Now, Harrison County is not going to have to pay that. The insurance company is going to pay that to avoid further defense costs. So that's the settlement. But, but now let me tell you what was asked for in the beginning. Now, let me point out that the coroner, Hargrove, was specifically found that he had not done anything wrong. Let me point that out. He was exonerated of doing anything wrong. When he testified, he said he was colorblind in his duties, and I believe that he probably is. But in this court hearing, in this settlement, he got exonerated from doing anything wrong. So I want to make sure that you understand that. He he or his office uh, was not found guilty of anything. So let me just point out here that the black funeral homes had argued that they were owed $870,000 in lost profits from 2012 to 2016. And the reason why they lost the profits, they say, they argue that most of the time when, the, when a funeral home removes a body from the scene, the family members let that funeral home conduct the services rather than having it moved to another funeral home. So not always, but a lot of times. So they feel they've lost $870,000 in profits. The experts who prepared the estimate had originally put the black funeral homes at a loss of $6.4 million. Well, number one, if they argued that they lost eight hundred and seventy, what experts said the estimation loss was $6.4 million? Obviously, they're not very expert at anything. But then when it was all said and done, they settled on $110,000. So it went from $6.4 million to 870000 was the argued, and that was only possibly that the families would use a funeral home, and they settled for one hundred and ten. Now, here's my point about this. We, as coroners and death investigators, medical examiners, we have to be really careful what we do and how we are perceived by the public. However, and this is where I'm on my soapbox, I think if you know me now, so all of if you you may be listening to me right now and have no idea who I am other than my voice, but many people know who I am and know me, and I know many of the coroners in Mississippi, uh, the ones that I have met and dealt with. I love every one of them; they are fantastic people. Uh, Mister Hargrove's no different. But here's my problem: it seems to me that this is another example of we're bringing the race card into a problem that may or may not have been a problem. First off, if you have a problem that funeral homes are being used indiscriminately, then bring that suit. All right. If we have I'm going round numbers here. If we have 10 funeral homes and only three of them are getting the rotation most of the time, then seven funeral homes are left out. Okay, that's a problem. And if you want to bring a lawsuit or you want to bring a complaint on that, that's fine. But why do we have to bring race into it when it's proven that this coroner and this coroner's office is not racist? There's nothing to do with race. Why this was done, how this was done, I don't understand all of it. But I'm just reading what the the findings and the facts were. I'm probably one of the most colorblind people you'll ever meet, but I don't like to be accused of a racial issue. Does that make sense? You know, just like this Starbucks thing here recently in the news, uh, they came up that these 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 poop individuals were arrested and removed only because they were black. But obviously, we've learned that that is not the case. We've learned that that was a policy of Starbucks, and the manager only did the job that she was supposed to do from the company. And now the company's actually throwing her under the bus because nobody wants controversy and lawsuits. All I'm trying to say is we have to all work together, okay? And I'm I feel that it's a 
a negative thing to ta- to to skew the facts and make it racial when you can't actually say or prove that it's racial. Deal on the business side. If these ever know how a number of funeral homes are getting discriminated against because it's business practices, that's fine. Why do we have to bring race into it? If we want to be colorblind, if we want to be non-racist, then people are people. Humans are humans. I get so sick and tired of hearing, you know, well, this person's to get discriminated against because they're Asian or this person's black or, or we go into some. Hey, let me tell you what, straight up fact. I'm a white male and I have been discriminated against more than once in the black community. Just saying. All right. I'm certainly not where some of these people have been, but I think it's ridiculous. We're all human beings. We all live on this planet together, and we're all here to work and to love each other. This whole racial thing, and every time someone gets uh, gets a little butthurt, we want to throw up that it's a racial thing, I think is a little ridiculous. However, I'm happy that the funeral homes in Mississippi has got uh, their policy changed. I'm happy that they're going to be able to uh, be on a normal rotation. How and why that happened, what was going on, don't know. It obviously was proven that it was not a racial issue. It was just a policy issue or a a dispatch issue or something. But it went from 6.4 million, which is a gross overstatement. Now, let me let me back up. You want to be taken seriously? You want to be taken seriously that you have a serious issue and you go from 1.6 million to 807 or I'm sorry 6.4 million to 870,000 to 110,000 you're a, you make your your whole lawsuit looks like a joke. Right? It looks like a joke when you start out with 6.4 million and you settle for 110,000. It's because you didn't have a claim in the first place and you just wanted to cause problems. Now I'm sure I'm going to get letters, I'm sure I'm going to get hate mail, okay? But see here's the thing. I love you. I love each and every one of you, okay? But at the same time, this is my microphone. And I have an opinion. I, I, I'm glad that the whole policy has changed. I'm glad that they're going to be fair and equal. That I like. But I'm so sick and tired of us not getting along because we want to throw race into everything. It isn't always about race, people. It isn't. It, I swear, I promise. I promise you. It isn't always. Sometimes it is. And sometimes that's bad. And we need to fix that. But it isn't always that way. So it was proven in court that it wasn't. It was proven that it wasn't, uh, the coroner was not racist. And I'm glad that came out because I'm glad he's not. And if he was, I would hope that he, he would be removed and or prosecuted. Absolutely. But it was found that he wasn't. And I'm glad that he wasn't. And I hope they can all get along and, of course, move forward from there. So in the way, I hope I haven't made you mad. I hope I didn't upset you, but the whole point of it is we have to watch what we do. We have to be fair. We have to be uh, non-biased. And because if we're not, this type of stuff can come back on us too. All right. We can, we can be sued for things if, if we have a per- perception of being racist or perception of taking one uh, fancy funeral home or maybe a less fancy funeral home because, you know, some areas have, you know, higher scale funeral homes, white, black, it doesn't matter. Some are more richer than others. Uh, maybe some have a response time issue, whatever. We still have to make sure we're fair, firm, and impartial in everything we do. That's the key part here is to make sure that we are all operating equally and for the people of our jurisdiction and our county. Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation. All right, joining me on the show today is, as I introduced earlier, Elon, welcome to the Corner Talk podcast. You're not, you're not new to the show. This is your second time, I think. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here today. Thank you for um 
having this wonderful dissemination platform uh, for yeah, coroners and medical examiners. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. So give us, I tell you what, let's start, before we talk about this study, start and give us an overview of the problem as a whole. And I know months ago, maybe even a year ago, we talked about this, but give us an overview of what we talked about then, and then let's talk about this new study. All right. So um, we're talking about uh, long-term care homes, and long-term care homes um, may include, among other settings, nursing homes assisted and assisted living residences. Uh, there's other types of long-term care homes, but today we're going to focus mostly on nursing homes and assisted living residences. Um, now, um, one of the... Uh, one of the uh, pre one prevalent uh, concerning but under-recognized phenomena is when residents don't get along, okay? And the impact on target residents um, could be anywhere from uh, minimal to, uh, to severe and to deadly uh, incidents. Um, now, I want to uh, give uh, a brief definition of these incidents. So uh, maybe it will be helpful for the, for the listeners. The definition of resident-to-resident -resident incidents, uh, a negative, aggressive, and intrusive, verbal, physical, material, or sexual interactions between residents that in a community setting would likely be unwelcome and potentially cause physical or psychological distress or harm to the recipient. And I, I always underline in my presentations and training program on this phenomena, the words in a community setting, because if someone would walk into um, my office today and out of the blue tell me, Elon, blank you, I would probably have to lie down for a couple of hours, let alone if someone would lay a hand on me, right? But for some reason, when those episodes occur in nursing homes, uh, there is a tendency to normalize those incidents, and that's dangerous. Uh, and I, I believe, and my colleagues believe, that significant part of it has to do with ageism and with dementism. What value do we have in our society uh, to elders in general and those living with dementia? So what my study has done, my recent study, I examined the death of 105 elders due to resident res incidents in the context of dementia. And when I say in the context of dementia, I mean that at least one of the residents involved was reported to have uh, dementia. And I, and I will share the findings uh, uh, shortly uh, with you. What I found, this is the first study in North America that looked at fatal resident to resident incidents in nursing homes and assisted living residences. Well, you know, let's back up just for a second. You had mentioned about some of these activities becoming normalized. Now, are you meaning becoming normalized by the staff because they just kind of rule it as well? People in this condition act like that? Or are you saying it's becoming normalized by society? Well, both. Uh, nursing homes aren't, well, they, are, they, can, they can't operate uh, in, in isolated ways, so to speak. They are embedded within communities and within our society. The people who work in nursing homes are from this society, and they are uh, internalizing ageist and, uh, perceptions about older adults. 
And they're bringing these perceptions into the nursing home. Now, that being said, there's a lot of people who are aware and are not ageist and they're very compassionate and they're very dedicated. In fact, the majority of our nurse aides and CNAs, certified nursing assistants, those who provide 80 to 90%, 90% of the care are very caring and dedicated individuals, but they're very understuffed and undertrained and undersupervised uh, when those uh, incidents occur. Well, so, you know, we're going to get into some of the specifics of the incidents, but I could see in a nursing home setting, uh, people with dementia, things like that, there's going to be a lot of interaction. Maybe someone did push somebody down, but it could have been an accident. Maybe it wasn't an accident. But if nursing homes react, that's going to be every day. I think some parts of that can occur every day. But then what do they need to do to report? If it's a person that does it a lot, maybe they need to take different actions or move them to a different nursing home if they're violent. But when they just push somebody down and they've got dementia and things like that, how much more could a nursing home actually do to them because they are suffering from dementia or some other type of mental disorder? So I want to just take one step back and uh, say that if those incidents would occur in childcare settings, I think that the society reaction would be uh, more serious. Well, yeah, and uh, one thing in most child care settings that I know of, especially ones that are state certified, if a child bites another child or pushes a child down, maybe not just pushing them down over a toy maybe, but, but if there's any type of interaction, they're required to write a report and notify both parents. That doesn't happen in a nursing home, you're saying, most of the time, right? Well, we have to, there's an important distinction between nursing homes that are certified by Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, or what is called CMS. They have a lot of regulations. They're not perfect, but there's a lot of regulations that are, that are set minimum standards for care and, and compliance with federal regulations. By the way, they were just revised recently after 25 years. Uh, they were just revised recently, and we're still in the in phase two or towards phase three of the revisions, massive revisions of the regulations. Uh, as a, by contrast, assisted living residences that are considered the fastest growing residential care option in the U.S., with over 40% of the residents with dementia nationally, and one latest study shows seven out of 10 residents with some level of cognitive impairment, a very minimal uh, uh, regulations and uh, standards. It varies across states, but by and large, there's limited uh, regulations. Uh, in Minnesota, I'm speaking f- with you from Minnesota today, um, assisted living residence- residences are registration only. There are no re- basic safeguards, not only resident to resident, a- across the board with various care-related issues and and accidents and falls and risk assessment and protocols for care planning, et cetera, et cetera. It's anywhere from pre-admission to discharge. So we're talking about two different systems. Um, now, there are requirements to, in nursing homes, there are requirements to report uh, on those incidents, uh, but there are gaps there. And we can't get into all those gaps today, but... Um, we know that those incidents are underreported, not only underreported internally to the administrator and the director of nursing or the director of social services, the social worker, but they're also 
underreported externally to the state survey certification uh, agency. In Minnesota, it's the Minnesota Department of Health. Every Office of Health Facility Complaints. Every state has a different name for this agency. So underreported, and there's delays in reporting, delays internally and externally. And what it means is that we're not in a position to capture, to, to investigate it in time and capture the, uh, and learn from those incidents. Not to mention evidence for coroners, medical examiners, uh, police officers who are coming to the scene as well. Well, let me back you up just a little bit. When we talked Please. about residential care centers, is it the, one of the reasons why they're not as licensed or, or whatever you're trying to say is that it isn't a nursing home per se that's state regulated, but these, these care centers are more of a voluntary group housing situation. Why are they not as regulated? What's the difference, I guess? Between uh, nursing homes and assisted living residences. Yes. Why is one yeah. so strongly state regulated, but another one isn't as strongly state regulated? Right. So um, there's a there historically we had um, many more nursing homes, uh, but in recent years, in the past twenty years, fifteen years, we have seen had tremendous growth, exponential growth in what is called assisted living residences, particularly what is called memory care or dementia care unit or special care units for people with dementia. Why uh, is that? Why is that growth? Because we got more people getting older because of the baby boomers, or is it cheaper? Why did these things start springing up? Uh, well, there's a, there's, there's a uh, combination of few factors. One is that people, uh, uh, people uh, want to live in a place that looks more more like a home and not like a hospital. Um, and when you walk into many of those assisted living residences, it looks like a hotel. Now, that's a separate discussion, whether it's elder-friendly and dementia-friendly. Uh, that's a whole different discussion. Uh, and oftentimes, it's not. But it's good for marketing purposes. Uh, and yes, I prefer to live in a hotel than in a, in a hospital, but still, many of the elements in the physical environment of those uh, um, assisted living residences are not uh, user-friendly for elders and, and especially not for elders with dementia. And that's a separate discussion. Now, people, uh, so in nursing homes, um, people, uh, the, the quality of care on average uh, was low. There's many uh, government accounting office reports and other report, government reports, federal reports on low quality of care in nursing homes, although there has been ma uh, progress made over the years uh, with the regulations of nursing homes and, and efforts for compliance. Uh, but people wanted to live in a place that feels more residential, and they were looking for an alternative. And developers identified that and tapped into it. And that's why we see incredible growth of assisted living, which with the philosophy is supposedly different. It's more home-like and um, there's more respect for choice, perhaps, uh, and uh, more autonomy. But, but that was good when we started having residents in assisted living. Now the population has aged in place and we have over 40% residents in assisted living with dementia. And seven out of ten with cognitive impairment. The reality has changed, but the regulations have not caught up. 
All right. I understand now because they're going into an assisted living without any mental issues, but because they're aging in place, as you say, now they're starting to have Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that. Maybe not to the point that the family has to hospitalize them, but we have problems. Uh, But but wouldn't be so similar as staying in their own home. They're not able to take care of themselves there, but they're in a assisted living with a little bit more care, but they're not watched as much. But right. a lot of the assisted living centers I've seen, they have individual rooms, but a lot of them have common areas as far as living room and dining room and things like that. Um, I think there's some others maybe have their own kitchen, but not that many. So a lot of these incidents you're talking about, does it occur in the private rooms or in the common areas? So... Sh- you know, so you, it's kind of a segue into the findings of my uh, study, uh, pilot exploratory study. Um, so with regards to your question, and I should preface and say that um, while I examined the death of 105 elders, and elders I define as people over uh, the age of 60, 60 or older, um, for each data element, for example, in your, in, to your question, uh, where those uh, incidents occurred, um, 59% uh, occurred inside bedrooms, but it's, but it's out of 84 incidents for which there was data to determine it, okay? So for each data element finding, we have to uh, take into consideration the number of incidents for which there was data to determine it. So to your question, 59% out of 84 fatal incidents occurred inside bedrooms. Okay, now um, 43% out of 77 fatal incidents occurred between roommates. Now, many of these out of sight of staff members. Now, we know that uh, related to that, that 62% uh, out of 84 incidents were reported as not witnessed by staff. Okay? Okay. So we have a study that used video cameras, many video cameras and high-quality sensors in the public spaces of the unit. That's a different study. And they found that nearly 40% of physical resident incidents were not witnessed by staff. This is video. So you can go frame by frame and actually see what actually happens. Okay? So that's the gold standard in research, right? And 40%. So we are missing substantial portion. Staff are missing substantial portion of those incidents as they occur. Now, I'm just looking at your study as you go as well. I know we're getting into it. But if I understand this right, 44% are from like pushes and falls. You're saying that you're saying the majority happens between roommates in a bedroom, in a, in a sleeping room, so it's not witnessed. And about 44% of those was a push and a fall. Is that what you're showing? Okay, so there's a, there's a, a distinction here, more important distinction. In general, inside bedrooms, 59%, okay? Um, and then... Uh, 62% were not witnessed by staff. Between roommates, 43%. Now, inside bedrooms could mean inside the target resident bedroom or the exhibitor, for lack of a better word, okay? Uh, And and there's a breakdown for that that you don't see in the poster that I shared with you that I presented recently in a national conference of the American Society on Aging in San Francisco, is that inside target's bedroom was twice as much as in the exhibitor bedroom. Uh, so while it occurs inside exhibitor's bedroom, so a lot of time, one of the phenomena that are very common is residents with dementia 
maybe looking for their own room and they can't find it. So they enter another resident's bedroom and now this is an invasion into a personal space and there's an altercation out of sight of staff members who are busy oftentimes doing something else. They're not even aware it's taking place. All right. Yeah. And then and, with regards and, to and, the and push fall, the- that was a fascinating fi- finding is uh, push fall 44% uh, out of 99 incidents were characterized as push fall incidents. What does it mean push fall incident? If you would push me now, okay, I might be able to block myself and prevent an injury. But if I'm a 90-year-old resident with frail, with dementia, with a walker, oftentimes you see uh, uh, fractures, particularly hip fractures and brain injuries or combination of these two. And then there's a medical condition deteriorates. uh, And then... um, but it is not always attributed, the cause of death on the death certificate is not always attributed to the incident. So you see pneumonia, he died of pneumonia. Well, this was a medical complication after he was beaten severely a week ago. Right, well, that's where it changes for the coroner's medical examiners is if somebody falls and breaks a hip just because they fell, you know, if they die as a result of a blood clot or something resulting from the injury of the broken hip, then then that's an accident. Uh, but now if another resident pushed them, then that would really be a homicide. If, if a nurse did that, they could be charged with homicide or felony murder. If a resident does that, it could be the same thing. They caused the injury that caused the death. But uh, if you said a lot of these go underreported, but is that something that be- could become an issue that residents are going to be charged with homicide if they push another resident? I mean, understand it probably would be impossible to prosecute somebody with dementia, but that's a, that's something the coroners, MEs, and police officers are going to think about. Right. So kind of context, and you know this better than me, um, autopsies by coroner, medical examiner, nursing homes, are conducted on a very, very tiny fraction of deaths in general, particularly, I mean, as well as those that are suspicious or unusual, premature, or um, uh, that require some a further examination in person, right? So well, that's, and only, in the, for instance, in the, in the slip and fall and the accident, only if the nursing staff tells the coroner, the medical examiner's office, yes, this person fell, uh, broke a hip or something within a certain amount of time, or they had an altercation. If we don't know that, the, the medical examiner will most likely release the death and just have it be signed out by the doctor for whatever reason. So uh, you, to your point, these things aren't being documented and put in their file, which means when someone dies, the medical examiner coroner is not being notified, so there'd be no reason to do an autopsy when the person was 90 years old and declining anyway. So right. you're right. These can be missed a lot. Yeah, they are, they, and they are. They are. And it's a, it's a devastating. I'm in touch with family members who lost their loved ones, and they're devastated, and it's tragic. Uh, not only the trauma for the resident, but also the, uh, the sense of helplessness. for the, the sh- First of all, the shock. A lot of family members say, oh, my God, we, we moved him to an assisted living or nursing home to, be, to remain safe. And then they get this phone call that the resident was injured severely or died. 
and they just completely shocked and they feel very isolated. So um, you're bringing up a couple of important issues. Uh, one of them is um, the issue of whether it's taking place by you know, a staff member injuring a resident or a resident injuring another resident. So you know, technically, it's an homicide, right? If a, a human being is causing the death of another human being, it's a homicide, right? If I understand right. it correctly, right? Yes. That being said, we are talking about highly vulnerable and frail population. In nursing homes, the majority of residents have dementia. Some estimates talk about 60, 70, some parts of the country could be 80% with dementia. And, and dementia is underdiagnosed, so it might be even higher than that. So we're talking about a serious people with serious brain disease. Oftentimes, even residents who are considered the exhibitors in those incidents are uh, victims themselves. Not always. There are residents who have lifelong tendencies to violence and they have criminal background and a criminal um, record. And they were violent before. There's sex offenders living in nursing homes. Um, not all of them are active, right? Uh, so, so you have people with lifelong tendencies that may continue into the nursing home, exacerbated by the dementia. And there's a lot of people with serious mental illness, right, that also plays into this phenomenon, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, etc. So when we're one of, one of my, my concern is that because, so, so rarely residents with dementia are charged in those incidents. I'm, I'm aware of only a single incident that a resident with dementia was charged uh, due to this incident, okay, to a fatal incident, resident to resident incident. And it was, it was in, the, in the mild or early stages of dementia where, there, where some individuals are still capable of doing it intentionally. So they were able to, according to the report, prove intent to harm, okay? But that's very rare. My problem is that when police comes in or the coroner's coming in, once they hear the person had dementia, they're dropping the case, they're closing the case. And we, as a society, as a community, as loved ones, as policymakers, are not learning from those incidents because they're not investigated. So what we need is to track this phenomena, to, to investigate it and learn not to criminalize a person with a serious terminal brain disease, such as Alzheimer's disease, but to learn from those incidents. Because trust me, those incidents reoccur in the same patterns and it's it's a huge missed opportunity not to learn from those incidents and on your findings here you're looking at 105 deaths during this time period but from our conversation here i'm inclined to believe that this number of deaths would be a lot higher you're only finding 105 because of proper reporting or witnessing or whatever uh, I could see where this number could be a lot higher in these situations. It is. Uh, according to one estimate in Canada, actually, uh, about half of fatal resident arrest incidents are never be never become public information. Now, there's different reasons for that. You know, there, first of all, we have to re remember the landscape, the legal landscape with, within which we're operating, okay? If there are nursing homes and assisted living operate under concerns for liability, concerns for adverse publicity, there's a massive uh, uh, disincentive to report. Uh, nobody wants to incriminate themselves, right? Uh, so how do you... How do you 
create a learning environment uh, at the nursing home level and then at the state level and nationally. Uh, and I, I believe that uh, those who do a good job in preventing those incidents, those care providers who do a good job are actually reporting more because they, are, they understand that only when you report internally in time, immediately to the administrator and to the director of nursing and director of social services and do an internal investigation immediately and report to the, to the state, we as, co- as, a, as a community can learn from those incidents and prevent incidents from occurring, similar uh, incidents occurring in the future. But I could see where you were, you know, you talked about negative publicity. Nursing home has a lot of these incidents. It's going to look bad upon them. Of course, if they have deaths in the facility because based on that, they could contact or, or it could come pack their bottom line financially and these people have owned these things for financial gain they can care about people all they want but they also have to have a business to succeed so that's going to interfere so i could see where them not wanting to report uh but even if they didn't report to the state and i don't i don't advocate that but even if there was something in a file to where if the uh, interaction files reports things like that in a file when someone dies they would have the information available just because a resident pushed another resident and there was something in the file something may never come of it but they're not even doing that much which means well not all but a lot aren't doing that much which we don't have that information yeah mm-hmm so one of the problems is that uh, the CMS that's, that certified nursing homes in America does not currently have what is called FTAG. FTAG is a state survey deficiency citation. And there's, there's uh, at least 100 of them for various care-related issues, okay? Uh, for falls, psychotropic medications, physical restraints. But the resident-to-resident incidents fall under big, broad buckets of, if you will, of abuse and neglect, and they're buried forever. So we're not learning from them. I published an article with 20 reasons why, a journal article, 20 reasons why we need an FTAG for resident-to-resident incidents. Because as the, the director of, of the CMS uh, Survey and Certification Group, David Wright, said a couple of years ago, he said, we, CMS, don't want to become the historians of bad care. What's the point of compiling thousands of reports that we're not reading and we're not learning from them? So if you have an FTAG, so when I made a freedom of information request to CMS and I got data recently from 50 states to analyze abuse and neglect, my original intention was to capture resident to resident incident. They said, sorry, we don't have an FTAG for resident to resident. So now it would take years to identify those buried within state inspector reports, texts, and uh, it's it's extremely time consuming. It's almost Im- impractical to do. So well, you if we had one right one F tag, we could do that. Right. Even if you had the information that there was a resident to resident incident, if there wasn't an autopsy done to denote the real cause of death, you would simply be guessing anyway. Uh, so I could see where even if you went through all that data, you still would not necessarily have very close to the real numbers. That's true because uh, citations are under underestimation of the actual incidents that occur. Uh, so, but a learning organization, those that are committed to what is called culture change in nursing homes, those that that uh, implement all the roadmap, all the components that provide good care, 
uh, anywhere from staff training programs to meaningful engagement of residents. Many times those incidents occur when residents uh, are not engaged in anything meaningful, so they're bored. This is exactly where a subgroup of residents with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia develop irritability and restlessness and anxiety. They're trying to go to the door. They want to go home. They fight with each other. But the same group of residents, when they're engaged in something meaningful, purposeful, that enriches their lives, you see dramatic reduction of those incidents. Uh, but several studies have shown that the majority of residents with dementia in nursing homes are doing basically nothing most of their uh, awake hours. Right. Yeah, I could see that, too. So we're getting close on our time here, Elon. Let me just uh, finish up by asking you this. Uh, some of your future directions that's on your uh, poster study here talks about the medical legal database. And are you referring that to the medical examiners and coroners? What type of information would you like you know, again, we don't set policy here, but as things go on, what could coroners and medical examiners do in our database to help recognize some of these issues? Well, um, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. And what I mean by that is that there are parts of the world, there's parts of the world, places in the world that have innovative models. Um, so, for example, in Ontario, Okay, just north of where or Minnesota, where I am living. Uh, since 1990, over 25 years, I'm talking about 28 years, uh, there is a requirement in the law that um, uh, deaths in nursing homes, particularly those that are unusual, suspicious, premature, uh, there is what is called the geriatric long-term care review committee that are required to to review those incidents and make them and make the, the final reports publicly available for over 28 years. I want to see a similar system in the U.S. Well, that would uh, okay. be fine as long That's as great. the nurses are documenting the actions and the interactions between residents. Right, but those that um, uh, make it to the uh, to the coroner, right? At least with them, we need to start uh, to examine them as opposed to having them sitting in files across the country in a fragmented, as I understand it, fragmented coroner medical examiner system across the U.S. Uh, so that's one thing. Another initiative that uh, is taking place in the U.S., I believe in Arkansas, uh, there were a few residents in nursing homes that died and the coroner became suspicious of the circumstances because it says natural cause of death. And, and he got him information that maybe it wasn't natural, okay? So he ordered to, there's a technical term that you know what it is, um, to take the bodies out of the grave. To exhume them? Exactly. They did that, and they found that the cause of death was different. It was, it was a homicide in several of them. And he became a champion a leading advocate for a law in Arkansas to uh, require that all deaths, and I know it's, it's, you know, some may question that because it's, it's a matter of capacity, right, of a coroner capacity and medical examiner capacity to investigate all deaths. But he requires to receive reports on all deaths for at least a basic triage uh, process. And then he can look further into those who have uh, who are under the criteria of suspicious, unusual, premature uh, death. And then he can go in and do the examination in real time. 
Right. Now, here's Missouri's law says that all death within the jurisdiction has to be reported to the medical examiner coroner, including nursing home and hospice. That law changed a few years ago. But every area within Missouri has a little different way of doing it. So, but by and large, it works nearly the same way because, like you said, of capacity. So, a resident dies in a nursing home. A coroner is notified. However, that notification takes place in their area. Sometimes the coroners call the nursing homes back and say, okay, hey, I, I had a report that Susie Smith died. Can you tell me some information? Yeah, she died. We found her yesterday. Well, you know, any recent falls, medication changes? Nope, nope, everything's fine. Did you, is there anything in the file from another nurse or anything that leads you to believe there's a problem? Nope, everything's fine. Has the charge nurse looked at the body? Is there any bruises or injuries? Nope, everything's fine. She's just been old and kind of been downhill lately. And, you know, um, well, is your doctor going to sign it out as natural causes? And they say, yeah, our doctor will sign it. Okay, well, um, and that's it. That's, that's what the coroner gets. Now, some coroners go to the nursing homes, but you, you realize the, the bigger areas or the more nursing homes, they're there for one reason. A lot of times, and that is they're going to die in nursing homes. So there's a large amount of death in a nursing home. Now, if a coroner does, now some coroners in Missouri, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I got my own opinions, but some coroners say, look, the law says I have to be notified. So nursing home ABC, here's a form to fill out. Fill this form out, fax it to my office. You satisfied the law. I satisfied the law. And unless you think there's a problem, then they'll just leave it that way. Well, again, the nursing home is not necessarily going to notify you all the time if they think there's a problem, if they're trying to hide the problem. But at the same time, there's only so much a coroner's can do when, when they're asking the question. So, so Missouri has the law. The coroners have to be notified but then what process they take depends on the individual corner offices, but is also based upon the information nursing home gives them. Again, based on our conversation we've had so far, there's still a big hole there, Elon. Um, there is. Uh, I want to ask the same question for childcare settings. My yeah. daughter is three years old. Uh, if, if, God forbid, one of her peers or herself would be injured, or you know, worse. Um, I want to see a more serious response by society, by policymakers, uh, by legislators, by coroners, and medical examiners and police officers. Uh, the forensics also another piece is that the forensics of elder abuse and neglect and resident rest has overlaps, but also unique characteristics. And we're still at an infant uh, state of development in terms of research, of identifying. Because as you said, when, when a child dies and when an elder dies, there could be unique, distinct characteristics for, for, for either, right? And police officers need to be trained in those characteristics. Uh, so there are centers for excellence in forensic elder abuse and neglect, such in Orange County, California, and other places that are model for that. But um, anyways... So yes, the point is that yes, it will still be underreported, uh, but um, I believe that elders, if I'm in, if I'm in, you know, 87 years old, and I can live another week, and I could live another week, that week could have been very meaningful to my life. Okay, right. so I deserve to live that. That's a human right issue. It's a legal issue. It's a human right issue. There. By federal law, they are, they are required to provide nursing homes, 
required to provide safe care environment. So that week could be very meaningful. Maybe I wanted to share something with my family. Maybe I wanted to experience something before I die. So I feel that there's a lot of normalization and, and, and dismissive attitude, unfortunately, tragically, uh, to the detriment of the residents and their family members. So it has to be a, a timely and thorough investigation, the same standards we apply for child care deaths. And, and from that point on, we need to identify what are the gaps in the coroner medical examiner system and the law enforcement system. And there are reports that already report on that uh, in terms of coroner medical examiner, that our protocols need to be developed uh, to respond in time and to conduct a thorough examination of the body and the scene and also requires staff not to contaminate the scene. Uh, for example, they may wash the resident or they may be removing items from the scene, and now you compromise the investigation and the evidence. I agree with you 100%. You've got a couple of problems in staffing of the coroner's office. They just a lot of times do not have enough manpower to investigate these deaths. I also agree that in many cases, whenever you're dealing with a nursing home, you, you used the word dismissive, and, and, and I, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to use that word, but, but I do understand that your way of thinking is that many people, even investigators, coroner's office, medical examiners, they do understand that they're going into a nursing home and you get way more deaths out of a nursing home than you do a child care center. So it does get a little dismissive, doesn't it? It does, it does get a little bit, well, yeah, they die there every day. That's just, that's what they do. That's the place where they die. Um and so, so I could see where that can cloud some of the investigations as well. So you're, so you're right. I'm agreeing with you. Uh, I also agree that I don't know what the exact answer would be uh, because you also, someone has to pay for the further investigation. But I think that each coroner or medical examiner's jurisdiction can take it upon themselves to do a better role. I know from talking to you the last time, after I talked to you the last time, I kind of looked at how we did things in our county. And I went to our nursing homes and I met with all of their charge nurses and we set some things a little bit different. Hmm. And when a resident dies, I'm going to ask a certain amount of questions and they need to have the answers available when I'm on the phone. Uh, and the charge nurse, the actual on-duty charge nurse, 24 hours a day they have one, has to go and do at least a cursory body exam because I want them to look for marks, bruises, things like that, not just a CNA or not just guess. So so we've started doing things a little different here since I spoke to you the last time. Uh, I don't know that we're doing as much as we can, maybe or should, uh, as time and money allows. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think in, in closing here, I think one thing I want our investigators listening to know is in your jurisdiction, in your area, you can do something to um, improve the investigation of the elder death. If they happen in a home, you would investigate it further. So if it happens in a nursing home, you should also make sure you're asking the right questions, showing up sometimes and doing an investigation rather than just saying, fax me a form to the office. Elon, I'm sure you would agree that anything is better than nothing here. Right. So um, it's important to uh, emphasize that many of those incidents occur because, because of realities of understaffing. Half of nursing homes in America were found recently in a, in a very large review of many studies to be understaffed. And one quarter are dangerously understaffed, meaning we're putting residents in danger. It's also cruel for staff members, by the way. Now, those residents' incidents 
oftentimes they are uh, neglect. They are issued by state survey agencies as neglect. Neglect either by the institution, by the long-term care home, nursing home, or, or individual or, or employee, uh, or a combination of these, right? So it's not just uh, the resident who exhibits it, which we always have to remember that they have, you know, oftentimes they have a, a serious brain disease, or uh, so it's, it's, it's not just the resident, it's also a responsibility of the long-term care home to provide a safe environment. So neglect is an issue here as well. Uh, the other thing that you need to look into is the history. Oftentimes when I review those incidents, I saw that there was a history that resident who was the exhibitor in the fatal incident had a history of similar incidents in the, not, uh, in, in the, in the past few um, hours, days, weeks, months, or, or a year or two. So there's a history oftentimes, not always, uh, but there's a history oftentimes. So what did they do? If they knew the risk, did they adjust the care plan, which is a legal document, for the resident or not? Did they investigate internally or not? Did they document the investigation? Did they report it immediately to the administrator and the director of nursing? Uh, did they report it to the state? So those things need to be questioned. And again, there's two systems here, assisted living and nursing home, and they're very different in terms of the regulatory standards. So we always have to remember that as well. Uh, now, when I say, um, when I use the term um, dismissive, um, I mean in practical terms, you know, uh, I cherish, of course, the work of police officers and coroners and medical examiners. And I myself started in a nursing home 24 years ago as a nurse aide in a nursing home where my grandfather lived. So I cherish the work of the nurse aides. Uh, but I feel that we're applying a dual standard in our society for children and youth and for elders. And when you look at the CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, and you look how much effort they put on uh, prevention of uh, violence and death among children and youth and women and domestic violence, and to, and to what extent they focus on elder abuse, uh, then I think that it becomes uh, clear that as a society, we're not applying the same standards. And I'm not talking about natural, truly natural deaths. I'm talking about deaths that were, were caused by neglect or by harm by another individual. Um, so oftentimes, I mean, five of those 105 incidents where uh, I, I classify them as untruthful reports. So the family was told uh, the resident died. Uh, he just fell. One wife, which we interviewed, uh, Dwayne Walls, uh, the wife was told on a Thursday that he just fell. She asked, shall I come? I can drive one hour. I can come see him. I said, you don't, don't worry. We're, we're watching him. She walks in on Monday, and he is, she was terrified what she saw, the injuries on him. And, and, and she asked, what happened? She, they, told her she, they kept telling her, he just fell. And she said, those injuries could not have happened from a fall. Eventually, they brought the head of the whole campus, and she admitted. She said, let's sit down. She told her he was beaten by another resident when he walked into another resident's bedroom and climbed into his bed. And he was beaten by another resident with dementia, with a cane. She stayed with him. She moved in with, his, with her husband, and he died a week later. On his death certificate, she told us there was only pneumonia uh, recorded. So, you know, there's a long way to go. Some families put uh, hidden cameras, and they were able to substantiate that the reports are not accurate. 
So there are ways, but um, I think that in general, I, would, I only can wish and hope and that coroners, medical examiners, and police officers uh, would look into uh, unusual, suspicious, and premature death in nursing home in a more serious way as we would have done with childcare settings. Right, right. And I agree. And I know we still have a long way to go. Uh, but again, what we're doing here and what we've done in the past is just sharing the information, making investigators aware that there's a problem. And then from here, I think we can we can improve. So, Elon, again, thank you for coming on and taking some time and share this study with us. I'll have, of course, uh, links to it in the show notes and things like that. And and it's a very interesting study, and it, it really does bring to light the problem we talked about before and, of course, talking about again today, that there is a problem, and there are some things that we as investigators can do. So uh, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to share with us and help our investigators. Well, I, and I uh, really want to thank you for your interest in this phenomena. Uh, and if you hear or one of your listeners hears about a coroner office, doesn't matter where in the United States, or a medical examiner office who wants to collaborate, who wants to share information and, 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 and learn, because we need to reach across sectors. We need to reach across industries so that we we'll, we'll improve our response to unusual premature and uh, uh, unusual uh, death that could have been avoided and are not, because we're not learning from those incidents. So I would love to hear about uh, people who want to collaborate uh, and share information uh, with your, within your network. Right. No, I appreciate that. And, and I'll put that out too to, to our listeners. And if somebody they can contact me, they can contact you. I'll have your information in the show notes as well. Either way, hopefully somewhere across the country, we can get a few agencies that wants to uh, help you with some information and, and maybe you can help them understand the better way to investigate as well. Right. And I want to say that I do have a training program and I have uh, a DVD, 90 minute a keynote talk that I gave here in Minnesota uh, to um, the medical director, uh, Minnesota Medical Director Association, uh, how to prevent those incidents. So it's not just to track it, it's how to prevent. So if nursing homes, administrators listen to your podcast and they want to be able to uh, train their staff. So I provide training across the country and internationally and also have DVD and I can also make it available via Vimeo. So how to prevent it, how to understand, how to prevent, how to uh, de-escalate as it happens. Uh, so, so I also have that resource uh, as well. Fantastic. That's great. Well, again, thank you very much for your time. And I appreciate you taking time to come on and share with us. Thanks, Don. Always, always pleasure speaking with you. Take care. All right, I'm right back with you here. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. You know, dementia patients uh, can be a little difficult to work with, of course. Uh, and I understand nursing homes and long-term care facilities that have their hands full. Uh, but investigators, you know, maybe we need to ask a few more questions. Maybe we need to understand what's going on. So I hope you uh, enjoyed this conversation that I had with Elon Caspi. Now, so, and, and in the beginning, I hope my rant of the Mississippi issue didn't uh, turn you off. If you're still listening this far, then obviously uh, you're still with me. But I enjoy every single week coming to you, talking to you about something new, giving you some news, things like that. I want to remind you to be watching for the emails and the notifications for the Death Investigator magazine. It's something going to be a fantastic resource for our community. Something that doesn't exist anywhere yet. 
So until next week, everybody, find a way to be a blessing. Bless somebody in your life. Bless somebody in your work. Just find people in your area to somehow bless. Because I promise you, when you treat people fairly and you love people as people and you bless them, you will be blessed 10,000 times over. Till next week, everybody, be safe. Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coroner training. 3617-1024 scene on route to morgue.